The question before us uh, during our time together is going to be, what is a faithful church? What does a faithful church look like? And to do that, we're going to look at a church that's considered to be a faithful church. I don't know of anyone who wouldn't consider it a faithful church, and that's the church at Philippi. And so we're going to be in Philippians this morning. So if you want to open your Bible with me once again to Philippians, as we contemplate and consider what a faithful church looks like. And we want to do this for obvious reasons. We want to do this because we would like to be a faithful church, and we would like to to avoid being an unfaithful church. I think it's quite helpful just to even stop and realize that in the Bible there are faithful churches and there are unfaithful churches. This was news to me when I first became a Christian. Uh, For me, when I first became a Christian, uh, it was outside of the ministry of any local church. And so my conclusion was, church is bad, Jesus good. I heard the gospel outside of church, had nothing to do with church, and I experienced salvation. I love Jesus Christ and I thought of the church as bad because the church is where I went my whole life didn't hear the gospel that I can remember. Then it's so helpful to read the Bible and grow and think, oh, wow, amazing. The Bible talks about bad churches and the Bible talks about good churches. Oh, I need to be part of a good one. Not a perfect one because there isn't one, but to be part of a good church and, and to do my part, so to speak. Can you think of bad churches in the Bible? What churches come to mind if you had to say that is an unfaithful church? Well, some of you are mouthing things to me. I can't see everybody at the same time. I'm very confused. Um, this is like speaking in tongues without a translator. But anyway, <laughs> the Corinthian church was pretty unfaithful and, and heard some harsh words. I saw some of you mouth Corinthians. Um, Galatians, uh, there are some pretty harsh words spoken to the Galatians. Some of you were saying that. Um, Maybe winning the Darwin Award for churches would be the church of Laodicea um, in the book of Revelation, a very unfaithful church. So unfaithful are some of those churches that Jesus' threat is to do what? (sighs) To blow out the light so they won't actually even be churches anymore, even though they might call themselves churches. So what we're going to try to do is look at the book of Philippians. And again, I don't know of anyone in Christian history who hasn't said something positive and saying this was a faithful church. Perfect church, no, but a faithful church. So what we're going to do is look through the book of Philippians, the whole book. We won't get it all done this morning. uh, And we're going to make observations and say, here's a characteristic of a faithful church. Because Paul's affirming them for this. Or here's a characteristic of a faithful church because Paul is teaching them by example from his own example in this regard. So that we might, again, seek to be a faithful church. I I don't know about you, but I'm not looking to waste the rest of my life playing church. Um, I've got other things to do. I think there's a game on today, isn't there? Um, We could be getting ready for the festivities or something. I mean, there are a lot of other things to do. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want you to waste your life. I don't want us to just play church. Not only that, I would love to be able to tell lots of unbelievers who are very critical of bad things the church does, hey, wait a minute, there's a difference even in the Bible between a good church and a bad church. And so I think this might be helpful. It's on my mind and in my heart as well because I was asked to teach on this when I was uh, in India. And I thought, well, this is kind of strange. I want to travel across the world to tell people what a faithful church should look like. Uh, and, and not talk about it myself back at home. 
I guess what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, And these things are on my mind. And so let's talk about it this morning so that maybe, by the grace of God, we might be a more faithful church than we are now. I have a list of 12. I think we'll get five done because that's what happened first hour. Um, And we're going to celebrate communion at the end. Uh, And so we'll leave time for that. And so we'll do five of 12. I know there are more than 12. In fact, I've already added I have 14. But for this series, let's just keep it to 12. And this morning we'll look at five characteristics or five marks of an honorable church, uh, a church that Jesus would affirm as we would seek to be that kind of church ourselves. Number one, a faithful church is devoted to the gospel. It's devoted to the gospel. That's a no-brainer, right? You could have guessed that one. But we're going to see the gospel is actually tied to each of these characteristics. But let's look at verses 3, 4, and 5 and see Paul affirming the Philippians for their consistent devotion to the gospel. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, please notice this, from the first day until now. And I really wanted you to notice that last part. Partnership in the gospel, fellowship in the gospel, from the first day until now. So there is faithfulness in the gospel, but it's a consistent kind of devotion. From the first day until now. This is who they are. This is what they're about. This characterizes this faithful church. And so the letter starts off by commending them. This is important for us to see for obvious reasons. But it's even important for us to see because it's not that they were faithful and committed and devoted to the gospel when it was the cool thing to do. When everything seemed to be going well and there were lots of numbers associated with Christianity. And for me, this is an important issue even in the 21st century right here and right now in our country because right now, gospel-centered is cool. If you want to sell books right now in our Christendom uh, publishing industry, you should write a book that has something to do with gospel-centered. It's, it's, it's what's trending. Gospel-centered is trending. But trends by nature of what they are, are trends, and and they come and they go. What we would want to be as a church is committed to the gospel, affirmed by an apostle, one who speaks with the authority of Jesus, from the first day until now, there's a consistent devotion. It's the DNA, it's the fiber, this is who you are, this is what you do. And if we want to be a faithful church commended like this, from the first day until now, from now even when it's trendy, till the next time it's trendy, this is what we do. This is bread and butter. This is basics. First importance, like Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. Gospel focused. Faithful to the gospel. Faithful to the good news about Christ. That Jesus Christ voluntarily came into this world and submitted himself to the law of God. The law that we all break. But he didn't break it. He obeyed it on our behalf that he submitted himself to the law of God, that he loved the Father with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself perfectly, 
that he then voluntarily went to the cross as if he'd broken the law in every way, shape, and form. Even though he didn't break it, he kept it, but he went to the cross voluntarily as if he broke the entire law. And then he rose again from the dead. God was satisfied with his work. That he brought us justification. That we would be right in the eyes of God. That we would be acceptable in the eyes of God through him. That's the gospel. The good news about the work of Jesus. And this church, the Philippian church, had been committed to that gospel and partnering in that gospel from the very beginning. First love kind of talk from Revelation. And the first love remained their first love, even until now. And so we as a church would want to be gospel people. I don't use the word gospel-centered right now because it's so trendy. But in all the best senses, we want to be gospel-centered, gospel-centric, Christocentric, however you want to say it. But we really do want to be. But not just so we can sell books or have the nicest new books, but because this is just really who we are. There's fidelity to the good news, fidelity to to the one who is none other than the, the good news himself, embodied it's faithfulness to jesus isn't it interesting how we get so complicated and complex that sometimes we forget the most basic things and i know you probably get tired and weary of it but you know i i like to say remember we're christians it means we're associated with christ and christ is our savior even to say remember when you drove in today it said omaha bible church. Oh, a church is made up of Christians who by definition are gospel-centered. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is our heartbeat. And if we were going to be a faithful church, we would want to do this. It haunts me as a pastor to think that Paul had to say to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Timothy who, who was prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead yeah i've got to remember that it's easy to forget let's move on to another characteristic of a faithful church if philippians is a faithful church and certainly they were number two they're not ashamed of the gospel they're not ashamed of the gospel and we see this in verse six and seven especially in seven but let's go ahead and see uh, paul affirming them In verse 6, it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. How about this? Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And you might be saying, how did you get unashamed from that? Well, well, from the end of the verse there, the end of verse 7. Whether he's imprisoned or defending or confirming the gospel, they're there with him. So it's not just when things are trending high and, and if people, it's, it's the cool thing to say, I'm a fall, as people sometimes did. I want to be associated with that guy. He is so articulate. And, and if you heard him engage on a philosophical level, it's amazing. But not just in those times, he says, even in my imprisonment. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, we heard something about him. Yeah, he does talk about sin too much, doesn't he? 
all busy going on about the law of God and righteousness and how you're unrighteous and no one is righteous, no, not one, and no one does good, no, not one. And that really just doesn't seem to be selling very well. And we, we probably need to change that a little bit. Yeah, Paul. We think he's a Christian, but you know. He's saying to the Philippian church, I have this feeling in my heart that is so positive and I'm praising God for you and I'm confident that you're the real thing because you stood by me, you fellowshiped with me, you partnered with me even in my imprisonment. You're the real deal. You're not ashamed of the gospel. And it's not just that you know that verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. You're showing it when, when the tough times really come and it might actually cost you something to say, I'm committed to the gospel that yes, emphasizes the law of God and yes, emphasizes sin and yes, emphasizes the work of Jesus exclusively. No hope without it. You still fellowship with me. You still identified with me. Your heart was still beating with me. It wasn't a trend for you. You're not ashamed of the gospel. If we're going to be a faithful church, then we don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. We're going to identify with and associate ourselves with and own it for ourselves to what the true gospel is, which again is going to not make any sense if there isn't a God who is righteous and if there isn't a law that we break and if there isn't offense by us and if there isn't unworthiness of us and if there isn't perfect atonement, perfect sacrifice, perfect righteousness coming from somewhere other than yourself. It comes from Christ and so no more pride. Now it's humility. If we're going to be a faithful church, I guess we're going to do that. Right? I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Corinthians, they want something else. This just is not selling the way it used to. We've done surveys. And Paul says, we know one thing. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what we do. Perfect atonement in Him and Him alone. And that is humbling. And that's offensive. But it's the power of God unto salvation to those who are the called of God. And the Philippians get that. I want Omaha Bible Church to get that and to re-get that and to re-get that and to keep on re-getting that because it's so easy for us to lose sight of it. And I know I'm a broken record on this one too, but I'm just going to keep being a broken record. Once again, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Jesus saying, do this, keep doing this until I come. Why? In remembrance of me. It's about me. This is, the whole thing is me. Perfect atonement in me. Righteousness in me. And it's so easy for us as Christians. It's easy for us as a church. It's easy for me as a pastor to think, you know what? Things are trending elsewhere. It's got to come back to that. And not being ashamed of that. So I'm thankful for this reminder. And I hope you're thankful for this reminder. How are you guys doing? Can we just pretend like we're Baptists just for a minute? <laughs> when, I, when I pulled in today, it did not say Omaha Presbyterian Church. I love Presbyterians. For their good theology especially the old dead ones. And I love Baptists because they show that there might actually be some signs of life. 
Pray for me, beloved. Pray for me. (laughs) See, if I weren't a pastor and couldn't do this, I don't know what I would do. Because I would be doing this where you're sitting, and then I would be a distraction, and you'd make me leave, and I I don't know where I would go. So uh, one way to be sure that you're called to pastoral ministry is you just can't contain it, so you can stand up front and freak out in front of everybody. That's probably not a good way to describe pastoral ministry. But don't, don't, don't you feel a sense of, yeah, that's right. It should be resonating with us. And maybe doing some repenting on the way and say, you know, I'm getting distracted and it's so easy for me to get distracted that it's not about the basics and I'm moving on to something else and beyond. And that's not helpful. It's not helpful. The good news about Christ and what he's done for us. It's so easy for us to be distracted from that. But we need to have it be as of first importance like 1 Corinthians 15 says. And a faithful church like the Philippian church is seeing this in their very midst. Let's move on to number three. A third mark of a faithful church would be that they bear fruit because of the gospel. They bear fruit because of the gospel. And we see this in verses 9 to 11 in his prayer. Let's look at that prayer there where he says, And it is my prayer in verse 9 that your love, that would be gospel fruit, right? right? Like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. I pray that your love may abound more and more. So they've got love that abounds. He wants it to abound even more. So he's praying for more, but he's acknowledging that it's there with knowledge. I'm going to take it in this kind of context. This is a gospel kind of knowledge, knowledge regarding Christ. The word is used that way oftentimes. And all discernment. So now you're thinking about what this looks like and how it applies and how it doesn't apply. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's fruit bearing and there's more and more fruit bearing is his desire. This is what he's praying toward. And it's with a view toward Christ's return, which we'll talk about next time. But then do notice verse 11 that wraps it all together in this because of the gospel kind of package. There's fruit bearing, but look what it says in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. could be translated filled with the fruit that righteousness produces. Uh, In the greater context of the the book, the gospel righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness he's going to talk about in chapter 3. That you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, the fruit that the righteousness of Christ that's been given to you produces. This is what the gospel creates in you in salvation. And then we keep going. That comes through Jesus Christ. Where does this righteousness come from? It comes through Jesus Christ as would be the fruit of the righteousness. To the glory and praise of God. It's a great way for him to be praying for those believers. I'm just praying that the fire gets stoked more and more. Let me affirm that it's happening, but let me know, let me tell you that I'm just praying that it just keeps coming and it just keeps coming. And do notice, please notice, this faithful church that has gospel produce fruit like increasing love does have it because of the gospel. And you might be thinking, that's a no-brainer, I see it. But so many times what we end up doing is we say, do the right thing, love. I think there's a place for that. I need some of that. I need you to come up to me and say, love. 
But do notice in this passage, he's purposefully, unassumingly connecting it to the gospel. It's the fruit that the righteousness of Christ produces. And this is very helpful for us because now we, we're connected to the source. Yeah, you need to love and I'm going to pray that you love more and, and, and it's genuine kind of love. But let me remind you where that comes from and why that comes. And it comes because of Christ. And sometimes we shortchange that and we just tell people the right thing to do, but we forget to remind them where it comes from. And you know what I really need is I need you to take me back and take me by the hand and maybe take me by the scruff of my neck and, and we need to have a coming to Jesus meeting. <laughs> I need you to take me to the foot of Calvary and say, remember this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You were unlovely. Your good works were filthy rags, Isaiah says. And he loved you. And then the fruit of this righteousness is that you would love. Okay, this is helpful. It's making sense to me. Okay, okay, okay. That's right. That's right. That's right. Faithful church, I think, is going to be like this. So Paul knows how to pray for them. Maybe in one other passage regarding this would be in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 12, this gospel-based fruitfulness. 2.12, famous verse, 2.12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, obedience would be a gospel fruit fruit of righteousness. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, he says, and here's the command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And how many times is that taken out of context from the rest of the book? And somehow it even kind of gets tweaked and it's work for your salvation. Work out your salvation, not for your salvation. And oh, by the way, it's because you have the righteousness of Christ through the gospel that this can happen. And now you're working it out. You're fleshing it out. Oh, yes, it's a command. Absolutely. But in the greater context of the book, the command comes because you can now do this because of the work of Christ in your life. And a faithful church is going to be a church that hears this. Do the right thing. Work out your salvation. In light of what Christ has done, love. In light of what Christ has done, have peace. In light of what Christ has done, make peace. In light of what Christ has done, be patient. In light of what Christ has done, and the list goes on. The fruit that righteousness produces. Another way of saying that in the command mode, not the prayer mode, is you work out your salvation. Live in light of what's happened. And he's tenacious about it. He says, with fear and trembling. And then verse 13 says, for it is God who is at work. I, I, off the top of my head, quote different translations <laughs> that I learned it in. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. A faithful church is going to be a church that's committed to bearing gospel fruit. We, we can't just say, well, yeah, we're committed to the gospel, which is a big deal. I don't want to slight that. And now that we have fire insurance, we just live like the devil. No, in light of that, we respond out of gratitude. We, we act 
in line with our new nature. And as I like to say, there's no perspiration involved in Christ's righteousness being credited to you. That's by faith. Justification talk. But sanctification does involve perspiration. This is work. We're working this out. There's going to be effort involved. Not so that we can claim credit for it and stick our chests out. But to show that Christ has really worked in us. So for Omaha Bible Church, just to make sure we're possibly clear on this, if we believe the gospel is true, then we'll hear the command that says, you work out your salvation. Still kind of ethereal because he doesn't say what that looks like yet in that verse, in that text. But when you look at the whole thing in Philippians... You end up seeing things like, okay, then you love. Get along with other Christians. Unity, he's going to talk about that. Have joy, regardless of what your circumstances are. This is part of working out your salvation. We're, we're looking forward to the return of Christ anyway, and we're not promised wonderful everything in the here and now. This is part of working out our salvation. And so that makes it more practical for us. But the key is, we keep going back to what happened there that Friday afternoon outside of Jerusalem. Which is really short-sighted because it involved a lot more than one Friday afternoon, I know. But we contemplate and we consider what He's done for us. And then we realize we're called to live a certain way in light of what He's done and it changes things. That's why I need you to not just tell me what to do. I would prefer you never tell me now. <laughs> shock value to wake you up to not just tell me what to do you need to tell me why and I might say don't insult my intelligence I understand imputation, justification, sanctification glorification and just see through that whole thing and say I know you do on paper but I need to take you by the hand and we need to go visit the cross and that's real for Omaha Bible Church. We will say we believe in the solas and we believe in uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And we should and we need to, even in light of Philippians 3, we'll get there. Not today. But that translates into a certain kind of conduct in a local church. It's not always easy. Let's move on to another mark of a faithful church, and that would be number four, right? Are we on four? Encouragement comes from the progress of the gospel. Maybe we could say ultimate encouragement is gospel-esque, is gospel-centric. It comes from, from the progress of the gospel. Setting it up just a little bit before we see our passage. You've got the Apostle Paul who's being supported financially by the Philippian believers, and he is their apostolic missionary. And they're putting all their eggs in one basket. And they're gospel people, and they want the gospel to go forth, and they want it to go out, and circumstantially it's not. And he's imprisoned. Oh, and then back on the home front, you've got some conflicts within the church. I did say several times, not a perfect church. 
circumstances don't seem to be that great in certain senses. But Paul knows what will warm their hearts like nothing else will warm their hearts. He knows what will help, to, help them to, to float above and rise above the circumstances and to see the greatest thing that would warm their hearts above all other things, and it's the progress of the gospel. Look, he does it in verse 12 and following. I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Reading between the lines, they're concerned that it hasn't advanced the gospel. This is a problem. This is a dead end. This is, this is bad. The blessings of God are gone. I don't know. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard or praetorian guard or Roman guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord in my, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Keying back into that verse 12. The advance of the gospel at the end of verse 12. I want you to know about the advancement of the gospel. Just what the doctor ordered, I know how to encourage you as believers because you're a faithful gospel-centric church who's been committed to the gospel from the first day until now. Let me warm your hearts and bring unity and encouragement and joy. Guess what? Circumstances have all gone wrong, but the gospel is progressing. And the faithful church he's anticipating will say, Ah, yes. Man, things are tough. Circumstances are tough. But what warms our hearts is this. This is the one thing, how about, that will last forever, have an eternal impact. The progress of the gospel. No doubt, because it's fresh in my mind, and I'm still half jet lag, so if I don't make any sense, cut me some slack. But no doubt you can imagine for me uh, just coming back and being able to stand before you and say, things in India, the short mission, couldn't have gone better. That doesn't even seem right to say. It couldn't have gone better from my perspective. Why? Because the conversations we were having were the right conversations about the right kinds of issues because they were gospel issues and we didn't have to somehow impose them. It's what Vanit and Saya wanted to talk about. It's what the church members wanted to talk about. And, and from beginning to end, it was all about that and gospel progress and hearing about this man who just got converted from Hinduism and had to file his conversion and baptism with the state and renounce his old religion and pay the price. And you're hearing about this kind of stuff and you're thinking, this is awesome. Progress of the gospel. This is, I, this is amazing. I don't have any problems. Relatively speaking. Right? There, there's not a problem in the world. Relatively speaking. And I'm not trying to say there aren't real problems that need real tending to. But this great encouragement comes. And then somebody tells me about something in America and saying, you know, so-and-so has gotten converted and made a profession of faith. I'm like, problem schmoblums. 
There are no problems. Well, there really are problems, but you see my point. Encouragement comes because you hear of and you see and you witness the progress of the gospel and you say, really helps put things in perspective. And here's a faithful church and he appeals to what he knows will be true and that is they're going to be encouraged by gospel progress. I would pray that God would give us enough gospel progress and enough witness to gospel progress and that you see enough and hear enough that it really does help us sort through a lot of the problems that that we have and that need to be dealt with. Just to give us enough to get us encouraged. When things are really going hard, and sometimes they're really going hard, it'd be a great thing to pray for your friend. It'd be a great thing to pray for yourself. God, just, just give us some gospel encouragement. I just, I just tell me about, let me hear about and know about someone coming to faith in Christ. This helps. I might sign up for another day of Christian living and Christian ministry. <laughs> you ever feel like that? I feel like that every day. I shouldn't tell you that. No. Seriously. It's encouraging. Let's move on now to number five, a final mark of a faithful church for this morning. And that would be that a faithful church is united in the priority of the gospel. They are united in the priority of the gospel. The better commentators you might read, the better scholarly works you might read on the book of Philippians will tell us that there's one key section that has all of the other sections in Philippians fall into place. He deals with his introduction and he deals with priority number one and then they fall out to all those issues that are related to priority one, number one. But there's one key text that holds the whole thing together. And I would be in agreement that that text is chapter 1, verse 27. And I'd like you to look at that where we see this, this unified gospel prioritization. In verse 27, he says, only. Most of your translations start with a word like that. There's at least one English translation that, that take, doesn't have the word there. If, you, if your translation doesn't have some kind of uh, only word identifier, write it in the margin. Okay, in the, in the Greek New Testament, it's the Greek word monon. M-O-N-O-N. Monon. It is only. That is to say, priority number one here. I'm going to put a star in the margin. Only priority. Pay attention if you've been sleeping so far. Okay, only, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you can just hear me say one thing, he's saying, have your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that sounds really good, and it is really good because it's biblical, but he hasn't told us what that looks like yet. And so before we say, here's what I think that looks like, a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, that measures up to the gospel of Christ, let's let him define what he means for us by continuing to read. What does that look like? So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are, and here he goes, he's going to define what he means. What, does it look, what is it like to have a life that is worthy or consistent with the gospel? Here it is, Church of Philippi, Church of Omaha Bible Church, 
standing firm in one spirit. There's going to be a deliberate, deliberate emphasis on unity where he says one spirit. He uses defense. We can all relate. He uses a military image of, of defending something. Okay? We're going to stand firm in one spirit, both feet planted. Okay? That's the image. If you're going to do one thing that is having your life be consistent with the gospel church, it's this standing firm in one spirit. You're together on this. You've got defense covered. Gospel defense. And he's going to get to chapter 3 where he talks about false teachers who are going to try to undermine the gospel. And he's saying, Philippian church, if there's one thing you need to do, you need to have this unity that stands firm. You're going to defend whatever it might be. He's using a military image. You're going to defend the hill. Well, the challenge here for us is going to be as believers who make up the body of Christ at Omaha Bible Church, we can't defend the gospel if we're not together in gospel defense. One spirit. As if we're one person, we're that committed to the gospel, which assumes we know what the gospel is, by the way. We're standing firm together. Now, complementing this, even though he says one thing, he actually gives two metaphors. Because he goes on to say, with one mind, one spirit, one mind, really synonymous, just saying it a little bit different way, striving, great image, great athletic image, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I love the image, maybe because of sports. You can, you can see it, you can identify with it. It's a team sport and you're standing firm and you're striving together, locking arms for what? For no reason? Because we should just get along as Christians? No. Striving together, locking arms for the progress of the gospel. So we're not going to give an inch, but we are going to move forward. We're going to press on for the progress of the gospel. And this is gospel-centric unity. Again, we must know what the gospel is if we're going to march forward with gospel progress. I love it. I love the image. I remember being a theological student in, in seminary, working on my master's degree, and even before that, new Christian. There's a lot in the Bible that talks about unity and together, standing firm, one spirit. And I kind of thought unity, shmunity. You know, as, I, as long as we understand what the gospel is, we're going to get along. Oh, how wet behind the ears I was. And now time and time again, as a pastor... I, Philippians is like my buddy, pastoral ministry buddy, because we don't get along. But what's going to bring us together? Well, other things might bring us together in the short run. But by divine design, what's, what's intended to bring us together as a church? It's the gospel. We're going to stand firm for the gospel. And we're going to strive together as if we're one person for the progress of the gospel. Which is pretty bizarre to think about. The one thing that could unite us in this is the gospel. I mean, look, look around in the room. We're a pretty diverse bunch. You're all nervous. You won't do it. But see, I can. <laughs> if I look at them, they might look back at me. 
I mean, if you look around the room, it's a, it's a pretty diverse bunch from the way we dress to the way we look, socioeconomic status, where we've come from. I mean, what unites us is we, we don't all have weird names like Abendrot. You know, we're not all Germans. We look different. We talk different. We don't all have the same hobby. Oh, we're all part of a book club, and so we come together to worship Jesus. We don't vacation in the same places. We don't have the same kinds of jobs. We're, we're an odd bunch. A local church. What's going to keep us together? The gospel is what has to keep us together. Standing firm. Striving together. I love the image, the athletic one, because it makes so much sense to me too. Again, I hear there's a certain sporting event today on TV. Can you imagine? I've used this before, but I have to use it again because it's so helpful. In the Super Bowl, we're watching the Super Bowl today. And you're watching the game, and you've got timeout after timeout being called by one of the teams. And so much so that the coach has to go out on the field and say, what, what, what's going on? Well, what's happening here? Only to find that one of the teams can't have the next play happen because they have so many issues among them. Can you imagine how silly that would be? How inappropriate that would be? It's the Super Bowl, you know? You're trying to stand firm and defend your goal, and you're trying to then lock arms and together score touchdowns. Progress, right? You're trying to win the Super Bowl. And the coach to go out there, and one guy to say, well, you know, so-and-so didn't invite me out with the guys last night. I don't know how you transcribe. But that's how it is, you know? I mean, when you really boil it down to it, when we're comparing this to the gospel and the advancement of the gospel, (laughs) hello, we're trying to win the game. Get over it, you know? Maybe there are real issues and we can deal with those tomorrow, but we're, we're trying to do the most important thing in the whole world to those guys. We're talking about the gospel. I love Philippians. I love Philippians 127. I just need you to keep reminding me what the gospel is. And I need to keep reminding you what the gospel is. And we need to keep reminding each other of what the gospel is. And it's got to be our priority. And come whatever may be, it will hold us together. I want to preach a sermon sometime. I don't know if I've ever done this for shock effect or not, but to say unity at all costs, dot, 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 kind of, (laughs) you know, or something so I don't get fired, (laughs) okay? He's not saying unity at all costs because in chapter 3, he's going to call certain people dogs and evil workers because they're not with them on the gospel. So it's not unity at all costs, but when you got the gospel... For this local church in Philippi, it's unity at all costs. It's pretty strong. So we've got to remember the gospel. and It's got to keep us together and we've got to keep coming back to it. I love it that this morning we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as another reminder from the Lord Jesus Christ that it's about the gospel. And we're going to keep doing this until he returns.
So let's pray and end our study for this morning. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for Philippians. Um, Just thinking of this church, not as a perfect church, but a church commended by you and commended by the Apostle Paul. Help us uh, with gospel fidelity. Help us to be humble. Help us to not be just selfish and self-driven. But for the cause of Christ, for the defense and confirmation of the gospel, may we find ourselves diverse and united at the same time. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he's done for us. Thank you for what he's promised to continue doing. And we would ask that you might be pleased and encouraged even by what happens here. In Jesus' name, amen.